Welcome to the New Life Podcast. Here we want you to experience the grace of God. So through this sermon, we hope to come alongside you as you grow in your relationship with Jesus. To learn more about New Life, please visit our website at newlifeonline.org. Here's today's message. Well, good morning, church. How are you? Oh, you can do better than that. Good morning, church. How are you? There we go. Don't you hate it when pastors do that? Like, I sit out there and I hate it when pastors do it, and yet when I'm up here, all of a sudden I do it, so I apologize. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Chris Genders, a guest teacher with you today. I was here last week as well, so it's a privilege to be back for two weeks in a row. No sandbags. Teresa, are you out there? No, no sandbags today, I promise. I do have other props, but not, not a sandbag to carry or, or hold for a long period of time. Um, you know, I just want to encourage you. You know, my church, uh, I, I attend Great Oaks. I used to be on staff there. Um, I shared last week, we have an entirely new staff. It's weird going to church, my own church now. Um, the longest tenured pastor is, has been there for coming on three years in a few weeks, and he was my replacement, and then everybody else on staff has been new since him. Um, so it's weird to go to my own church. Sometimes I feel, uh, there was a book years ago, a leadership book called uh, Who Moved My Cheese? I don't know if anybody's ever read that, that leadership book, uh, but somebody wrote a church version of it called Who Moved My Church? I feel like that when I go to church in my own church, and um, we're in the, the midst of something similar to new life where we're trying to discern God's future for our church, and um, so I just encourage you, invest fully in what the, uh, the leadership has asked you to do. Uh, these are those forms that Brian was talking about. You can find them right by the sound booth as you leave. Uh, today, it's a, a prayer guide and then a response card. The, the leadership wants to hear from you, um, and I just wanted to remind you, these are due next Sunday. Um, so be sure uh, to grab those today, uh, bring these response cards back uh, with what God has directed your thoughts, your hearts uh, towards, and share that with the leadership. And um, it's not every church that invites their, their church body uh, to speak into the vision, and so it is an amazing thing that New Life is doing. So I hope you've been uh, partnering with them in this uh, 21 days of prayer and fasting. Let me, uh, let me pray. Um, as he said, you know, uh, the, the staff transitions with Cody and Sarah. Um, if you don't know Sarah Fisher, she is married to CJ Fisher, and CJ is part of Youth for Christ. Um, he's been there a lot longer than I have been, and so he announced a couple weeks ago that he's leaving to take a, a pastoral role in a church, and uh, that's, that's a hit for Youth for Christ, too. And so we're sitting here now going, okay, what do we do? We have three branches of ministry. We have Campus Life, which is kind of suburban youth ministry. We have uh, City Life, which is urban communities-based youth ministry. And then we have uh, juvenile justice ministries, um, and that's going into juvenile detention centers and youth farm and things like that and, and working with the students there. And uh, CJ oversees that final branch of our ministry, JJM, like he is the guy. And so now we're all going, what do we do now? How are we going to restructure our stuff? Like, what does this mean? We're excited for him. Um, at the same time, we're, we're mourning the loss of CJ from our team, just as you're mourning the loss of, of Sarah. So uh, let me just pray again for new life, um, and then we'll jump into the message this morning. Father God, thank you uh, for this church. Uh, thank you that uh, as, as they faithfully gather every Sunday, Morton and Washington, uh, that they as I prayed with the, the worship team backstage before service started, um, we, we join in a long line of believers throughout history who have done what we're doing here this morning, who have gathered together to, to worship you, to pray to you, to study your word together, 
to laugh together, to cry together, to, to enter into each other's lives, to do life together in community with other believers. Father, I, we know that also around the world there are uh, believers who can't do this freely like we're doing. And so they're, they're hiding in basements and underground churches and, and just wherever they can to gather, to, to, to read your word, to pray, to be together. Father, they're so desperate for your word that they would risk their very lives to spend time with other believers. Father, would you give us that spirit and that desire and that sense of urgency and importance for when we gather as the local church. Father, we pray for new life, for uh, the direction and the vision and uh, discernment. Father, we pray that, that you would just give the leaders an abundant presence of your Holy Spirit. Um, Father, as they, they hear from the church body and they, they uh, make decisions, Father, we just pray for your anointing on this church. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we are, uh, as a church, I'm going to say we, I'll, I'll be with you, you know, this morning. So we're starting a new series on the Gospel of Mark. Um, it's one of the, the four eyewitness accounts of Jesus in the New Testament, first four books of the Bible, or of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Mark is writing, and so uh, you're going to spend the, a few weeks, several weeks, on the first half of the book of Mark. You're not going to study the whole book of Mark, um, but about the, the half of it, the first half, and you're going to look at it through the lens of discipleship. Uh, Brian said, we want to look at, at, at what Mark has to say about um, how the gospel can give us a framework for discipleship. And I thought if we're going to throw that word around, we should probably define that word to make sure we're all on the same page. Uh, so here's, here's the definition for discipleship that I found. Someone who is following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and is committed to the mission of of Jesus. Let's camp here for a moment. So someone who is following Jesus. We're, we're not following our own path, but we're, we're choosing to follow that of Jesus. We're being changed by Jesus. We, we should look different year after year after year. We should look more and more like Jesus. And we're committed to the mission of Jesus, to the things that, that God is calling us to. Uh, my mentor for 18 years uh, used this, these two words when talking about discipleship. He said, it's a learner participant. You're learning about the way of Jesus, and you're participating in the, the things of Jesus. Brian is using a book uh, as kind of a guide for uh, the, maybe the series, maybe just this morning, but uh, it's a book called The Discipleship Gospel. Uh, it's written by Bill Hull and Ben Sobels. And in it, they talk about that it's not enough just to attend church. It's not enough to, to just do church activities but that we're missing the American church, New Life, Great Oaks, my church, and, and churches across the country, maybe across the globe, are missing a major component of being formed into the likeness of Jesus. Uh, they use this illustration in the book. It's an inverted triangle. Um, think of it perhaps as a, an inverted iceberg. And on the, on the top, we have the line there that represents maybe the water. And uh, we have the word and we have work. So we have the word of God. You know, this is our book. This is what we, we guide our life on, what we guide our, our churches on. Um, and we have the works of God, the things that we're supposed to do. And oftentimes, what the authors say is that oftentimes we tend to stay above water, right? If that line across the whole triangle is, is the water line, we're staying above water. And, and we're committed to the word, and that's a good thing. 
And, and we're committed to the works of God, and that's a good thing. But sometimes we misunderstand those two elements, particularly the works. And then they said, what we have to do is we have to, to dive below the surface of the water, below to the bottom of the triangle, to the way of Jesus. Now, when they talk about the way, uh, they're not just talking about the methods, but they're talking about your heart, your will, what motivates you, you know, fully to, be, to do and be the things of Jesus. And, and their, their proposal is, we need to eliminate that top line. Don't go from the word straight to the works, but let the way of Jesus shape your heart so that your works are, are a, an outpouring of, um, of your, your heart, of your emotion, of, of your submitting of your will to God. Now, what's unique about this is when we do that, when we dive deep to the way and we really let God shape our hearts, that our works may not look much different than what we were doing before. Because it's not an external change that happens. We, we still do many of the faithful activities of being a follower of Jesus, but we know that our hearts have been transformed, that our, our motivation for doing these things is not simply a, a compulsion because God says we have to or, or you know, a pastor says we have to or, or whatever, but it's, it's, not, it's not that. It's like, I want to do this because of what God has done for me. It's not an effort to, to earn God's love, but it's a response from God's love. I remember early in marriage, uh, my wife and I, you know, young couple, two different lives and, you know, people coming together and we're trying to figure out what is it, what does marriage look like? How do we function as a couple? And this may surprise you, but I don't like doing dishes. I just don't. I don't like cleaning. I don't like doing laundry. I don't, you know, I don't like scooping the cat litter boxes, any of these things, right? And I remember we got in an argument early in marriage over dishes. You know, if you're married, you know most arguments are dumb. But we got in an argument over dishes. And, and she said, I just, I want you to want to do dishes. And I'm like, honey, I will never want to do dishes. I will do dishes because I love you and because they need to be done. But just know, like, there is nothing in me that will ever want to do dishes. I want to go on a bike ride. I want to go out to eat. I want to go on vacation. Those are things I want. I will never want to do dishes. And what the authors are proposing here with this triangle is what my wife was trying to instill in me is, I want you to want this at the core of your being. I want you to do these things because God has shaped your heart to desire them deeply, not out of a sense of duty or obligation. The, this past week, I, um, I had the opportunity to sit down with uh, somebody from Youth for Christ who has retired from the movement, uh, faithful decades of ministering and serving, and uh, he's a, a former professor of youth ministry at Huntington University, just a wealth of knowledge and uh, he was coming to town for his 50th high school reunion at Richwood's uh, High School. And, and so word got out to the staff, like, anybody that wants to have lunch with Dave, uh, be at the office on Thursday, we're going to go out to lunch together. So there were seven of us that, that gathered together, we went out to lunch with Dave. Uh, one of our, our members kind of realized, like, we've got a long history represented here with these seven people. And so he did the math real quick, and he added up the total number of hours that each one of us had been involved in, Youth for Christ specifically. Not youth ministry. It would have been a higher number if it had just gone youth ministry. But Youth for Christ specifically. And we got 225 years 
of combined experience in youth for Christ. And, and Dave uh, just sat here and we began to, to talk about the state of uh, the world and our nation, uh, the state of, of the church, the state of youth ministry and of youth, and, and trying to understand more and more and, and just become better at what we do. And, and somebody asked a question, I don't remember what the question was, but his response struck me. It was so profound. It was a framework for understanding um, this inverted triangle, this inverted iceberg, uh, that it just, it just resonated with me. And so I wanted to share it with you this morning. Um, I've already shared it with my, my high school guys, small group on Thursday night. I learned it Thursday at lunch, shared it Thursday night, talking about it with my friends, sharing it with you guys. I'm going to share it with my Youth for Christ leaders tonight. Like, if you don't find it profound, just humor me and say it was, okay? But here, here's what he said. He goes, you know, spiritual formation, allowing God to shape us into who he wants us to be, we can kind of look at that through some biblical characters, and so he said, let's start with King Saul. Um, so you know I like audience participation. Um, what was it about Saul that made him stand out? Why did he get chosen as king? What were some of the things? Anybody? He was a warrior. Okay. What else? Appearance. Yeah. What was it about his appearance specifically? Do you remember? Anybody? He was tall. He was, a, he was a head above every other Israelite, right? He had the stature. He had the status. You know, and, and, and Dave went on to explain. He's like, Saul looked the part. And, and, and that's okay. Like, as followers of Jesus, we're supposed to look the part. We're supposed to be different than the rest of the world. And he said, but not only Saul, he goes, but we also have Solomon. You know, what, what do we know about Solomon? What did he do as a king? Yeah, everybody goes to the wives first. Yeah, that was his downfall. He had, he had like a thousand wives, right? Um, God's like, hey, you're supposed to have one. Just, you know, you went to a thousand. That's wrong. Um, what else? Wisdom. Yeah, I mean, people came from all over the, the known world to learn from him, to hear. He, he studied everything. Look at the book of Ecclesiastes. That was, that was just his exploration of everything, trying to find the, the meaning and the purpose of life. He, he structured his kingdom in such a way that it, it, it became just a, a, a thriving kingdom, right? So if Saul looked the part, Solomon uh, did the right things, mostly, you know, give or take a few thousand wives, um, and what Dave said to us on Thursday, he said oftentimes what happens in, in Western American Christianity specifically, because that's his context, that's what he knows you know, better than global, but he said many times we stop here as followers of Jesus when it comes to discipleship, when it comes to being shaped and formed by Jesus and into Jesus. He said we look the part and we do the right things mostly. It's the top of that inverted pyramid, the word and the works, right? We look the part and we, we do the right things. But Dave went on and he said, you know, but then we have somebody like David. What, what's the, the phrase that we always use whenever we talk about David? Man after God's own heart. After God's own heart. Yeah, there's something more there than just looking the part and doing the right things. We know that David didn't always do the right things, right? I mean, murder, adultery, all of this kind of stuff, deception. And yet when he was confronted, he repented. He grieved his sin. He went to, to God in seeking forgiveness and reconciliation of that relationship with God. 
And so there was something a little deeper. David dove a little deeper under the water. But Dave didn't stop there on Thursday. He said, not only do we have David, but we also have Moses. What do we know about Moses in his relationship with God? Obedience. Obedience. Yeah. Maybe not always willingly. Like, he tried to get out of some things, but he, he eventually went. He was obedient. What else? How did, how did uh, Moses interact with God face-to-face? Went into the tabernacle and encountered God face-to-face. Scripture says that he was God's friend. Moses, the Scripture writes that, that Moses is the most humble man on the face of the earth. Now, when you write that yourself, I'm not sure, um, but I'm just saying. It's the Holy Spirit writing through him, right? Moses had... I mean, David was a man after God's own heart, but Moses dove a little deeper. Like, he was a friend of God. He spent time face to face with God. If you want to talk about allowing God to shape who you are, don't just stick to the surface and look the part and do the right things, but really allow God to transform who you are. But Dave didn't stop there. It's not just Saul and Solomon and David and Moses. He goes, let's, let's talk about Peter and Paul and Mary Magdalene and, and all of these people in the New Testament after the day of Pentecost. What, what was unique about their relationship with God? What, what's unique about our relationship? If you're a follower of Jesus, what's unique about our relationship with God today? That Moses didn't have. David didn't have. What? Yeah. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Right? It's not just that, that God encounters us face to face, but he resides within us. Scripture says that the same Holy Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead resides within us as followers of Jesus. I, I heard it said one time that somebody was looking forward to going to heaven to, to talk to Moses and say, Moses, what was it like to be face to face with God in the tabernacle? And Moses is going to turn it around and go, what was it like to have God live within you? Like you, he was with you all of the time. And yet, how often do we allow that power of the Holy Spirit, that presence of God in our lives to to transform us? Again, it may not change our external appearance. You know, we may still look the part. We may still do the same things. But we know we've been in the presence of God and we've allowed the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us from the inside out. And that's what what this series is going to be about. That's what discipleship is going to be all about. We're going to look at the gospel as the cornerstone. We're going to look at followership. What does it mean to be a a true follower of Jesus? We're going to unpack the word faith. And what does that really mean in our lives today? And we're going to use the gospel of Mark as our framework for that. So let's let's take a look at at Mark, at what he has to say. We're just going to look at uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. Um, I'll have it up on the screen here if you want to read along. Um, that's the CSB version. I neglected to bring my Bible this morning, so I would be holding it open, reading it from you. This is the NIV. I don't want to confuse you with what's on the screen. So we're going to read from the CSB. Mark writes this, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And let's just stop there for a second, because Mark doesn't pull any punches. There's no, like, long welcome intro speech, you know. It's just, this is what we're going to talk about. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The, the good news. The word gospel means the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to talk about in this. 
And he goes on, and he says, as it's written in Isaiah the prophet, see, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. He's talking about John the Baptist here. We'll talk more about him here in a second. So John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. John was a unique character, to say the least. He proclaimed, one who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Let's pause there for a second. You know, we talk about God as uh, three persons in one being, the Trinity. The word Trinity never appears in the Bible. It's just not a word that we see in the scripture. And yet, we see the Trinity in action. And the, the baptism of Jesus is one of those moments. If you're ever in a conversation with a friend or a family member about the Trinity, because I know this happens all the time to everybody, right? Um, and you're trying to explain how can God coexist as three persons in one being. Take him to the baptism of Jesus. We have God the Father speaking from heaven. We have God the Son being baptized and God the Holy Spirit descending on them. You know, they all three simultaneously coexisting. It's not God as one person or one person, one mode of person at a time, but it's all three coexisting, interacting with each other. The baptism of Jesus is a great, great place to take him to. So he goes on, he says, Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were serving him. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. I don't know if you've studied the, the book of Mark before, but it is just action-packed. Like, Mark doesn't slow down. It's like watching a movie on Fast Forward, and it's just one thing after another. I mean, here we've got, here's the gospel, here's John, here's baptizing, here's, you know, temptation. Um, John's in prison, and now Jesus is preaching, like, all in 15 verses. You're like, whoa, slow down, Paul. slow down, Mark. Let's, let's talk about this a little bit. And so let, let's look at some of these snapshots. First of all, we have John the Baptist. Again, a unique character. He lived and he taught in the wilderness, he wore a garment made out of camel's hair, and he ate locusts and honey. And you can look at that. If you don't know the Old Testament, you're like, what does that mean? What's the significance of that? Well, in the Old Testament, we had the prophet Elijah, who was also a mouthpiece for God. And, and, and it was prophesied that there would be one like Elijah that would come in the future. And here comes John the Baptist in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And so all of the nation of Israel is taking notice, Right? In fact, they start to send people out to him. This is a good thing. Like, like when, you're, when you're doing something and, and, and people are starting to take notice and they come to you and they're like, what is happening? What's going on? Like, you're amazing. This is awesome. Like, you know, that's a good thing. Like, you feel good about yourself, right? And it's easy in those moments to go, I am the man. Yeah, I am the woman. This is, I know how to do this, right? And so the crowds come to John and they're like, who are you? Are you the prophet? Are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? And John's like, nope, 
I'm not, I'm not any of those things. I'm not that important even. Like I'm just a voice of, of somebody in the wilderness preparing the way for the Lord. You know, I always think of, when I read about John, I, I think of somebody like this, right? We've seen him in, maybe in real life, maybe in movies, kind of disheveled hairs all over the place. Actually, if you look at, at uh, historic Christian art, John the Baptist is always portrayed with like crazy wild hair and big long beard and all this stuff. Like we probably would avoid John the Baptist if we encountered him today, right? And yet, Jesus says there was no greater man born to woman than John the Baptist. An amazing character, if you ever get a chance to study his life. Uh, but John's a herald, right? He's the one that, that goes before the king and says, the king is coming. And, and if John is the herald, then when the king comes, Jesus comes, and we see the baptism and his temptation in the wilderness, those are, are, are like his inauguration and coronation. John is saying the king is coming, the king has arrived. When a king arrives, there's an inauguration, there's a coronation, there's an introduction of the king to the people. And so Jesus comes along and the king has arrived. The kingdom has come. It's a, the initiation of a return to the original design that God had intended. And John isn't the only one with a message. The king comes bearing a message as well. He says this, the, the time has come. You know, we think of time, and, and we think in our world, in our thought, of chronos, chronological time, right? That's a Greek word, chronos. And that could be one of the words that Mark chose in this moment. He could say, you know, history has built to this point. Uh, we've reached that point. The time has come. But that's not the word that Mark uses. He uses the word kairos, which is a, uh, the idea of a significant moment, a, a special moment. It's a, a 16th birthday it's a graduation day. It's, it's a wedding day. It's a day that we look forward to with, with great anticipation. And you've got to remember, the, the Jews had been waiting for this day for centuries. They'd been prophesied about the Messiah. They knew that the Messiah was going to come. And now, we know the rest of the story, but don't fast forward the story yet. We know that, that Jesus is not the Messiah that they wanted or expected. They wanted a, a political leader. They wanted a military leader, somebody to set them free from oppression. And you see, the Jews were a people without a nation. You go throughout history, and they'd always been oppressed. The Egyptians and the Babylonians and the Assyrians, the Persians, the, the Greeks, and now the Romans. And so the Jews had this cultural, ethnic identity for centuries, but were a people without a land, people without a nation. And they all, over time, had this thought that when the Messiah comes, he's going to set us free from the Roman oppression. And so this is the moment the Jews have been waiting for. This is their kairos moment. The king has come. The, the kingdom is here. And they're filled with a sense of anticipation, of excitement, looming freedom from Roman oppression. And so the king has come, he says, the time is at hand, and, and his announcement says, not only is the time at hand, but the kingdom is at hand. He says, there is a king. When there's a kingdom, there's a king. You see, we don't really understand the concept of having a king, do we? The closest we can get is the British monarchy, but even that really isn't anymore what a true king and queens were like back in the day, right? When there was a king... The people submitted to the king. They had no choice. It was a king's way or no way. They lived according to the king's rule and reign. 
And a good king could bring flourishing and prosperity to the kingdom. A bad king could bring destruction and devastation to the kingdom. And so the Jews now have a king, a long-awaited, anticipated king. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. We're finally going to be set free. Let's rise up and overthrow our oppressors. Grab your swords. Grab your spears. Let's storm the gates of Rome. What's the plan, Jesus? What do you want us to do? We're here behind you. And Jesus goes, I want you to repent. You want us to repel the Romans? Is that what you said? No, I want you, I want you to repent. I want you to cast aside the sword. Cast aside the spear. Cast aside your political aspirations your military goals. I want you to repent of your sins. Hmm. It's not the kingdom I thought we were going to have. See, repentance is a word we throw around in church a lot. I just want to spend a moment kind of unpacking that for you. Because it can, can be described in a lot of different ways, and I want to share with you some of those, and then maybe a new way of looking at repentance. So repentance at the surface is a turning from one way and turning to another, right? It, it, it's turning from our old way of life and turning to a new way of life through Jesus. You know, I love the wilderness, and so it, it's like having a compass in your hand, and, and, you know, a compass can point you in any direction, but there's always true north on a compass. And Jesus is saying, listen, I am the true north, and repentance is aligning that red arrow towards me and living your life in that direction. And th those are beautiful and, and great illustrations of repentance. But I worked with a guy a long time ago, and he said, I feel like we're not really getting at the heart of, of biblical repentance. Yes, it's turning from the old to the new. It's orienting your life towards true north, towards Jesus. But he said, think of it like this. It's a hot summer day. You're a teenager, and your parents have demanded, required that you mow the lawn. And you have a big lawn. Like, it's going to take you hours, because dad was cheap, and he didn't buy a riding mower, right? He didn't even buy the self-propelled mower. you got to muscle this thing up and down the hills and around all the trees and everywhere. It's going to take you hours. And so you go out, because you're a faithful student, faithful teenager, right, as we all were, and you don't complain, you just go out to mow. And you're out there for a couple hours, and it's hot, and the sun is coming down, and you're drenched in sweat. And you come in the house thirsty, and you walk into the kitchen, and mom is preparing lunch, and there on the counter is a, a glass of clear liquid. And you go to reach for that glass of liquid, and, and your mom says, don't drink it. And you, you're an obedient child, so you pull your hand back but you still want that water, right? You still want that, that glass of clear liquid. Your heart is still there. Let me retell the story. It's a hot summer day. Sun's beating down. You know, you are an obedient teenager. Your parents have asked you to mow the lawn, and your dad's cheap. Like, he didn't buy the riding mower. He didn't even buy the self-propelled mower. He bought the, the, the push mower. you got to push it up and down the hills and around trees. It's going to take you hours to do it. But you're an, a faithful, obedient teenager, so you, you go out without complaining, and you're mowing. And you're out there for a couple hours. The sun is beating down. You're drenched in sweat. You come into the house for a break, and mom is preparing lunch, and you see on the counter a, a clear glass of, of clear liquid. And you go to reach for it, and she says, don't drink it, it's bleach. 
and you withdraw your hand quickly, and you suddenly have no desire for that glass of clear liquid. And my friend said, repentance is supposed to be like that. That that we turn from our old ways, and we turn in such a way towards Jesus that this is repulsive, that this is death, this is harm to us, and we never turn back towards it. Now, are we successful in that? No. We all know that. We're all sinners. Now, we repent when when we surrender our life to Jesus the first time, but repentance is also a lifelong pursuit. It's a nonstop act of saying, I'm going to run towards Jesus and run away from bleach as if it's going to kill me. Run away from sin as if it's going to kill me. It's surrendering control. It's giving all authority over to God. And Jesus says, not only do I want you to repent, but I want you to believe and, and believe when Jesus says believe isn't just mental assent. It's not just, yeah, I understand two plus two is four. You know, Scripture says that, that even the demons believed and they shuddered. I mean, they had belief, but they didn't have faith. They didn't have action. They didn't have obedience that came out of it. You know, when Jesus says believe, it's, it's an active building of your life around the way of Jesus. Let, let me illustrate it like this. You know, I know that this is a stool. I know that. I can see it. I believe it. I believe that that's a stool. It's metal. It's a little heavy. Seems sturdy. I, I believe that, that this stool was meant to be sat on. And, and, and I believe that if I sit on it, it will hold me up. Right? That's belief. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He goes, I don't want you to just look at the stool and believe it's there and believe it's real and believe it can hold you. He said, I want you to put your belief into action. He says, this is faith. When you trust what you believe, when you put your body weight fully on the stool and you trust that it's going to hold you up, This is what Jesus is asking us of. He's not saying, I want you to just believe in me. He says, I want you to to rest fully on me. I want you to trust me with everything. Campus Crusade uses this illustration as they share the gospel with people who don't yet know Jesus. And then they talk about how at the center of our hearts, there's a chair, a stool, And whoever sits in that stool gets to call the shots. Whoever sits in the the center of your heart, because it's not just about who you are, but it's about your emotions, it's about the the center of your will, it's what drives you, compels you. For us as followers of Jesus, it's it's choosing to follow Jesus. And and, and Campus Crusade goes on and they say, you know, but you get to decide who sits in that chair. God is not pushy. He's not going to force himself onto the chair at the center of your heart. You have to decide. Do you, do you want Jesus to sit on that chair? Or, or do you want to sit on that chair? Do you want to take control of your life? Make all the decisions? I know better than you, God. Or do you want to sit back here and, and, and go, Jesus, it's yours. You get to decide. You, you get to make the choices for my life. 
And there's times sometimes where we go up and we're like, hey, can we one cheek it with you, Jesus? Like, I got some things. Like, I just, can you, I'll, I'll take care of this over here. You, you take care of that over there, right? And then, you know, sometimes we're, you know, we're like, oh, no, Jesus is on the chair. Jesus is on the stool. But we're, like, climbing up on it, on, getting on his back, and we're like, okay, I can do this. Like, no, you're still there, Jesus. But, you know, and Jesus is like, whoa, I thought this was my chair. Are you going to let this be my chair or not, Chris? And discipleship is stepping back. It's allowing Jesus to sit in that chair to shape us, to mold us, to create us into who he wants us to be. And for the next few weeks, as we look at the, the gospel of Mark, this is what we're going to discover. is how do we make Jesus the, the seat, how do we put Jesus on this seat? How do we surrender control? What does it look like to be a, a true follower and disciple of Jesus? Somebody who doesn't just look the part and do the right things, but somebody who dives deep into, under the water, to be in relationship with God, to be formed by God in intimate ways, in ways that we could never do ourselves, to surrender control and say, God, you made me, and you know me better than I know myself. And God, I'm going to give you all control. The seat is yours. Let's pray.